Hi, you're listening to Kopi Time, a podcast series on markets and economies from DBS Group Research. I'm Temur Bek, Chief Economist. Welcome to our 61st episode. Today, we're going to go big on climate change and China. And to do that, we have a very distinguished guest with us from Beijing, Dr. Ma Jun, President of the Institute of Finance and Sustainability, which is an institution based in Beijing. He is also the Chairman of China Green Finance Committee, Special Advisor to the Governor of People Bank of China, Co-Chair of G20 Sustainable Finance Working Group, and Co-Chair of the Steering Committee of Green Investment Principles for the Belt and Road. Uh, Jun was also formerly Chief Economist of PBOC and member of PBOC Monetary Policy Committee. I personally had the pleasure of overlapping with him twice in my professional career, both in the IMF and as well as when we both were economists at Deutsche Bank. Dr. Ma Jun, welcome to Kopi Time. Thank you, Temu, for inviting me to uh, join your podcast. Uh, really glad to have you with us, Jun. Um, I will begin the discussion at the global level, and maybe then we will then narrow it down to China. So last month, uh, on August 9th, uh, the IPCC Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, they released their first report. Uh, it was the first part of their sixth assessment report, so-called the AR6. Uh, share with us your key takeaways from it. The AR6 report by IPCC essentially said that uh, global temperature has risen 1.1 degree since uh, industrialization. Against the 1.5 degree target set by the Paris Agreement, uh, we're left with only 0.4 degrees. This message reinforces urgency for the world to take actions and to mobilize finance to uh, implement the Paris Agreement. I totally agree with the uh, uh, UN Secretary General who said that uh, the report is a code red for humanity. The uh, extreme weather events that we observed recently, including floods in China and Europe and the wildfire in Greece, they're basically telling us that uh, the catastrophic impact of climate change is already a fact rather than a, a projection. Therefore, we need uh, immediate and more ambitious actions. Specifically, we need more countries to explicitly commit to carbon neutrality goals whether they are 2050 or 2060, and we need concrete plans and roadmaps for implementing these uh, pledges. Otherwise, we will run the uh, risk of doing too little and too late, which will lead us to the uh, narrower option of uh, disorderly transition in the longer term. But uh, on Asia, I'm pretty glad that uh, in a matter of just one year, we have seen major economies like China, Japan, Korea, and Indonesia having announced the carbon neutrality goals. Some small economies such as Kazakhstan recently also announced carbon neutrality goals. I think many others will follow. But uh, after setting these net zero targets, we really need to agree on policy actions and coordinate on these actions. So what are these actions? Um, for example, we need to remove fossil fuel subsidies, uh, need to introduce um, emission trading systems or carbon taxation, and we need to define what are the green activities and brown activities that uh, sustainable finance uh, should either support or should avoid. And also we need to invest massively in technology, uh, especially in areas such as uh, hydrogen storage, CCUS, energy efficiency, and so on and so forth. And all major companies and uh, financial institutions, in addition to the governments, they need to have plan and need to have actions. Jun, how do you convince a technology optimist that, you know, why do we have to go through all these painful transitional measures 
if we just you know, wait a little longer and technology will come that will suck out all the carbon from the atmosphere and we don't have to make all these adjustments. Of course, there are lots of uncertainties around your pathway towards carbon neutrality. Um, I think uh, what you're suggesting is probably taking chance, um, just in case there's some breakthrough in technology happens and uh, the world will be saved, but we cannot take chance. Uh, we need to use um, all possible means, uh, including the existing technologies, such as what we see in the solar, uh, you know, wind um, and uh, other uh, energy efficiency sectors, as well as the possible breakthroughs in the future. So we really need to invest in both existing low carbon technology and uh, apply them to all possible fields, as well as investing massively uh, in new technology that will help us and probably will be exceeding our target uh, in the future in terms of the time uh, that we meet the, uh, uh, the carbon neutrality goal. All right, so that I think sets the ground for our pivot toward China. So as you pointed out earlier that uh, it was I think September 2020 when China announced its carbon neutrality goal, um, maybe you can give us a snapshot of China's policy to confront climate change. And then maybe later we can talk about the magnitude of efforts that would be needed, but maybe first we just talk about the policy. Yeah, as you said, China announced its carbon neutrality goal in September last year. And since then, lots of uh, regions and sectors and companies began to uh, develop their roadmaps for implementation. Uh, I myself was leading a team uh, to help Chongqing municipality, which is one of the uh, provincial level uh, city to uh, draft this roadmap. And uh, uh, we're gonna publish this Chongqing roadmap in just a few days. Um, I've seen companies such as major power uh, producers announcing targets like by 2030, it will achieve 75% renewable. And a major steel company like Bao Steel uh, announcing their target of 2050 carbon neutrality, which is 10 years ahead of the national target. So these are all quite encouraging. And I expect uh, some regions, uh, especially those in coastal areas, announcing carbon neutrality goals that's 10 years or five years ahead of the uh, national targets. Uh, that's the actions that's been taken uh, already but at the national level, uh, the NDRC, which is the uh, uh, old planning agency, now it's called uh, National Reform uh, and Development Commission is working on what we call one plus N roadmap, meaning uh, in all major sectors, uh, including the energy, which is center and the building sector, the uh, uh, manufacturing sector uh, and transportation sector, they all need specific roadmaps to implement the uh, carbon neutrality pledge. As for policies, uh, a couple of things are in place and many more are being discussed and planned. For example, we have a national emission trading system already, which was up and running just uh, last month. And uh, some experts are talking about uh, uh, the possibility of imposing carbon taxation on smaller companies, which are not covered by the ETS. And uh, energy level uh, auto policy, uh, building uh, related policies are all being designed. I think uh, these sector policies will drive a lot of demand change um, in the uh, specific sectors. And finally, green finance, which is a field I've been working on for many years. Uh, we're trying to uh, raise uh, as much as a few hundred trillion RMB in the coming three decades uh, to support the uh, carbon neutrality goal by lowering the funding cost for green and uh, possibly uh, increasing funding cost for brown. 
I definitely want to talk. You mentioned about magnitudes. In fact, uh, yeah, I, I have a couple of estimates uh, uh, from different studies. One of which uh, is an earlier study back uh, end of last year, saying that uh, China will need to invest 130 trillion RMB uh, for green and low carbon sector uh, because of carbon neutrality. But uh, as I said, uh, we're publishing our uh, new estimates soon, and uh, my new estimate will likely to be closer to 500 trillion. Uh, because uh, the uh, uh, definition of these low carbon green uh, investments are quite different in different studies, but our uh, with a broader sort of a coverage um, will be much higher than early estimates. These are exceptionally large numbers, uh, Jun. We are basically talking about five times China's current GDP. Uh, yeah, but we're talking about next three or four decades. Right. Um, you are, you're talking about the one annual GDP number. Right, but we're still talking about, you know, substantial, you know, percentage of GDP in mid-single digit, perhaps, toward green initiatives on an annual basis. Indeed, uh, based on the uh, smaller number, 130-something trillion, that's about 2.5% annual GDP for the coming three decades. Based on larger numbers, closer to 10% of GDP every year. That's needed for green and low-carbon investments. I think that is uh, going to be a very influential sort of set of analysis for the rest of the world to understand that if you seriously want to go and embrace the transition, uh, how much cost it will entail and how to think in terms of you know, financing and finding revenues for that. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's a good system. So you mentioned the emission trading system, Jun. So maybe walk us through how that is working in China and how dissimilar or similar it is to the European emission trading system? Uh, China started its uh, experiment on emission trading system back uh, as early as uh, in 2012, 2013. Uh, so we had uh, seven regional um, emission trading systems, but now China is launching its national system uh, that's based in Shanghai. And as I said, it was uh, uh, the trading started uh, in July uh, this month, this year. Um, and uh, now the national system is covering um, a total emission of 4.5 billion tons of uh, CO2 per year, uh, which makes it the largest uh, emission trading market in the world. Uh, but still, the current trading uh, is only covering the thermal power sector uh, for the Shanghai market. And uh, these are 2,300 uh, companies. But in the coming few years, the uh, government is planning to expand the coverage to uh, many more sectors, including steel, cement, aluminum, uh, petrochemical, paper, airlines, and so on. So by then, uh, it's going to be even bigger uh, than the current size in terms of coverage of carbon. Um, it's similar to the European ETS in the sense that it is also a cap and trade system. Uh, but of course, uh, the carbon price in China is now uh, still lower uh, at the 50-something RMB per ton. But a lot of experts, including myself, are expecting to go up in the coming years and decade. Um, the current national trading system is not yet involving financial investors, which is a drawback. And there's no derivatives such as uh, you know, forwards and futures and options. But uh, all these are recommendations we are making uh, for the regulator to change uh, in the future. I think uh, uh, these functions will be added uh, in the not very distant future. Um, there another element of the Chinese carbon market, which is called CCER, that's China Certified Emission Reduction, uh, which provides a offsetting mechanism 
that's similar to uh, CDM, or we can call it a Chinese version of CDM. The uh, emitters uh, are covered by the national market or the compliance market can buy CCER as a carbon offset. And international airlines can also buy CCER using the uh, COSIA agreement. Um, but the CCR is not yet open to financial investors. And I think this is possible in the future uh, when we move to you know, refining these, uh, these policies. So Jun, I recently had a discussion with uh, Professor David Carbon, uh, David Victor at University of California, San Diego. And he has written uh, quite a bit of work on emission trading system. And he sort of walked us through how in the case of Europe, it initially did not work very well because the expectation was market-based solutions would be saving the day but then they basically need a lot of top-down intervention coming at the European Union level and then companies sort of fell in line. So would you say that the emission trading system that China is doing is also gonna be sort of the latter part of what the Europeans have done, which is more of a top-down signal and the companies would have to sort of follow? Uh, currently the main market in China or uh, what I call the national market is a top-down uh, driven uh, or top-down designed market, uh, but uh, uh, we still have options of uh, you know, developing alternatives. For example, uh, Mark Carney uh, has set up this uh, task force on voluntary carbon market. And uh, uh, my um, colleagues are involved in uh, um, studying their uh, standards. And uh, I personally believe that the China should also consider uh, developing a uh, voluntary carbon market uh, using the uh, international uh, TSVCM standards. And we also have discussions uh, uh, with Guangdong and Hong Kong um, to uh, uh, sort of look into the option of developing a uh, unified uh, regional market, uh, which is unifying the Guangdong carbon market uh, with the potential uh, trading mechanism in Hong Kong and adding uh, to that unified market a carbon connected mechanism, which will allow foreign investors to enter the Chinese carbon market. So all these are discussions that's going on uh, to uh, sort of supplement uh, the uh, top-down approach uh, for carbon uh, emission trading in China. Probably keeps you very, very busy. Uh, Jun, let's talk about uh, green finance. Uh, you have been the pioneer in uh, developing the green finance policy framework in China during 2014-17 when you were PBOC's chief economist. Uh, how does green financial system work and how would China mobilize? I mean, you mentioned this extremely large numbers earlier that how would the financing for all that be mobilized? In the past few years, China developed a framework of a green financial system, which I think uh, uh, can be sort of described uh, with four pillars. One is a taxonomy, which means that uh, we need to have a few documents to define what are the green activities that the green loans, green bonds, green funds should support. And so far we have three taxonomies in China, one for green lending, one for green bonds, and one for green projects. And the second pillar is disclosure. We wanna make sure that uh, the uh, issuers will disclose enough information, including environmental climate information to the investors so that uh, the green money will target uh, specifically for green projects. The third thing is about uh, incentives. Um, for some green projects, they have environmental benefits for example, they can reduce carbon, reduce pollution, but uh, um, the beneficiaries are not paying them. Uh, that's why their returns are not high enough to attract private capital. So for these projects, we need incentives to enhance their return. Um, under that pillar in China, we introduced uh, instruments such as the PBOC relanding facility, 
Uh, that's a central bank offering cheap financing to the projects through commercial banks and also local banks, uh, local governments offering interest subsidies and guarantees uh, to reduce either funding costs or risks for these projects. And the final pillar is what we call the suite of products uh, because different kind of uh, uh, green activities will require different types of financing and financial services. So we need to have loans and bonds and you know, private equity and uh, insurance products and so on, are all serving for the green economy. And uh, within that space, uh, um, China has developed the largest green lending market already uh, in the world. And we now have a second largest green bond market. But uh, uh, in terms of ESG products, we are still lagging uh, behind OECD country uh, in terms of proportion of asset management products uh, you know, labeled as, uh, as ESG. Um, sure. But uh, that's not enough uh, in the past, uh, four or five years, uh, uh, this uh, framework was uh, serving not um, sort of mostly for carbon neutrality. Uh, that's why recently a um, lot of uh, uh, discussions are concentrated on how to further improve the uh, green financial system here in China to uh, achieve carbon neutrality. And a couple of uh, uh, actions are now being taken. One is to modify the taxonomy to ensure that uh, the green projects are uh, not only addressing um, pollution, biodiversity issue, but also uh, clearly addressing uh, the uh, carbon issue. And secondly, enhancing the disclosure requirements um, to make sure that uh, the companies and the issuers and financial institutions will disclose carbon-related information. And on incentives, I think uh, the Central Bank will put out a bigger um, you know, relanding facility and other related instruments to support uh, um, green projects. And on the product side, a lot of experiment on carbon-related uh, financial products. For example, the interest of a loan or bond uh, could be linked to the uh, carbon intensity of the project. Uh, if the company reduces the carbon intensity more aggressively, then the company will enjoy a lower funding cost. I mean, June, I mean, of course, on paper, that's exactly the way things should be. Um, but what we have seen in practice around the world uh, in recent years is that as governments become very enthusiastic supporter of green financing, you see a lot of greenwashing. Uh, so how are you going to sort of deal with that issue of people try to just do some box checking exercise and hope to get preferential treatment because they're just doing the box checking, but they're not being serious enough or substantive enough? There are a couple of uh, safeguards against greenwashing. One is taxonomy. Uh, that's why I keep emphasizing the uh, importance of that in, in all conversations on green finance. You need to define what is green and what is not green officially, uh, rather than you know, allowing the individual issuers to define by themselves. Uh, that's why in China, we started with top-down taxonomy. Um, for example, the lending-related uh, taxonomy was uh, developed by the uh, banking regulator the first version of the China Green Bond Taxonomy uh, was uh, published by Green Finance Committee that I chair. And then now the second version is uh, directly by the central bank itself. So this is the first uh, sort of a line of defense, uh, making sure uh, the definition of green is clear. And the second line of defense is verification. Uh, for the banks, we have uh, regulators um, are saying to them that they we're gonna audit uh, the greenness of your projects. Of course, they are not auditing every single project, but there's a threat that you may be audited uh, for certain you know, loan transactions. 
that's uh, uh, claimed to be green, but not actually green. So the long documentation and the evidence of supporting their environmental benefits need to be there uh, to prepare for auditing. And also for green bonds, uh, a large uh, number, I think more than 60, 70% of the green bonds have um, the verification services from third party, um, except those which are pure green, um, you know, like renewable energy and the subway, you can see them as green, uh, you know, by your eye, but uh, most of other projects require third party verification. Uh, of course, the market itself is a mechanism uh, because uh, investors, and the uh, investment banking and this, it will begin to see uh, what is truly green and what is not green. And the market will react by, you know, staying away with non-green uh, companies or non-green uh, products, even though they claim to be green. Yeah, I'm looking forward to, you know, spreads beginning to reflect uh, the market's uh, trust or lack thereof on so-called uh, green products. And yeah, you're right. That would be a very useful source of information beyond just policing the, the attempts at greenwashing. So June, I just want to ask you a supplemental question, which is you are part of multilateral initiatives, but you're also looking at the, the China initiatives. Uh, best practice would be that we have worldwide uniform taxonomy, worldwide uniform rating system, uh, definition of ESG and so on. Are we there? Uh, no, that's a very uh, tricky issue back uh, in 2016, uh, when China was the president of G20, I had the pleasure to uh, co-chair the G20 Green Finance Study Group. In that year, we began to discuss uh, the need for introducing taxonomy, uh, need to uh, enhance disclosure, um, and uh, we need to have you know, green institutional um, investor products, uh, such as ESG and so on. Uh, but at that time, it, we're talking about the need for all these standards uh, because of the lack of standards. And uh, uh, now the discussion is totally different. In a recent discussion with ISO, International Standard Organization, I was told that there are 200 taxonomies already. <laughs> so uh, where are they coming from? Some are designed by the government. For example, China at the government level has three sets of taxonomy. Uh, Europe has the official taxonomy. It's called EU Sustainable Finance Taxonomy. And some are by uh, industrial associations like ICMA. Some are developed by NGOs like uh, CBI, and many, many more are produced by the company themselves. Uh, for example, uh, AP4, PINCO, Deutsche Bank, uh, Natissis, BMP, they all have their taxonomies. Just imagine uh, if every single bank has a taxonomy, then we probably have 10,000 taxonomy in the world. Uh, it's gonna create a total confusion, a lot of transaction cost, and the potential for greenwashing. Uh, that's why I strongly feel right now that uh, we need to move towards uh, consistency, comparability, and eventual convergence of uh, taxonomy in the world. The same thing happened to the ESG rating methodology. Back five years ago, there were very, very few um, rating companies working on that. Now, I think a few dozen um, companies providing different rating methodology. So the correlation of ESG ratings are very low. Uh, if one company says this is a good one, you know, high ESG score, and the other rating company said it's very low, so who do you believe, right? Uh, unlike the credit rating agencies, uh, they provide, you know, uh, results which are very, very correlated. So we need to consolidate uh, these methodologies and improving their consistency and transparency. And that's an effort we're making in this year's G20 Sustainable Finance Working Group, uh, which was reestablished by the Italian presidency 
And once again, I have a pleasure to co-chair this uh, working group uh, now together with a US colleague. And we're looking into you know, ideas and options on how to improve comparability, uh, interoperability, and eventually uh, consistency of these uh, standards and methodologies uh, for sustainable finance. Uh, June, could you expand on that a little more? And since you know we are talking about the G20 Sustainable Finance Working Group, that you know the coordination among major economies and how will like sort of develop economy, developing economies who are not quite there yet, how they would coordinate with the bigger countries like China and the U.S. and cross-border green capital flows, I think, is an integral part of all this. How will that get facilitated? Uh, Certainly, uh, there are lots of issues that require international coordination. Uh, that's why the G20 uh, Sustainable Finance Working Group are focusing on these uh, topics that require highest level of coordination. Um, for example, uh, taxonomy, ESG rating are issues we mentioned already. And the uh, reporting standards on sustainability is also very important uh, because there are so many agencies now uh, putting out the different frameworks and standards uh, for sustainability reporting. Some are focusing on climate, some are on climate and environment. Some are saying we need to do also biodiversity related reporting. Uh, some are saying we need to do this on a voluntary basis. Some saying we need to do this on a com uh, compulsory basis. And, uh, uh, and some are you know, producing specific templates and others are saying, you know, uh, let's uh, leave it to the, uh, um, the companies uh, for them to decide what to do. So all these issues, I think, require coordination. And uh, uh, this year, we have a uh, G20 Sustainable Finance Roadmap um, coming out. I think uh, uh, we're going to see that in October um, this year when the, uh, the G20 uh, comes to a conclusion. And within the roadmap, uh, we'll highlight uh, the need for coordination on these uh, specific areas. And uh, also, I'll need to further um, take actions to improve um, uh, risk management, uh, risk reporting, and uh, on establishing a framework of transition finance and also on the need to uh, look into how finance can uh, protect biodiversity. Uh, Jun, uh, from the broader multilateral, just to focus on Asia for, uh, for a moment, um, what are the opportunities for regional cooperation inside Asia right now? Um, I think in Asia, there are lots of opportunity because demand for sustainable finance is huge. Uh, we have you know, huge countries uh, uh, like uh, China and India and Indonesia in terms of population. Um, and also carbon emissions or carbon intensity are high uh, in these developing countries. So in the future, the demand for sustainable finance, I think it will be massive. Um, we can coordinate on many, many different areas, for example, on standards. Um, can ASEAN countries think about developing a regional taxonomy instead of uh, you know, 10 or 11 smaller taxonomy uh, that's applied to individual countries uh, with uh, you know, limited liquidity? And also, we need to collaborate on uh, developing green technologies and investing in these sectors. Uh, just to give you an example, Temasek is doing great uh, in investing in green tech, uh, including in China. And China has a great production um, capacity. Uh, we can produce a lot of a lot of things at a much lower cost uh, than many other countries. So by combining the, uh, uh, the, the investments, technology, production facilities, we probably can produce you know, low-cost equipment uh, in many areas such as renewable equipment, batteries, 
and the EVs uh, for the rest of the world, of course, for Asia. And also within the green finance market, uh, um, there are a couple of fairly developed uh, um, markets in Asia, such as you know, Hong Kong, Singapore being open uh, and with a lot of expertise. I think they need to serve the rest of the Asia, especially emerging markets better um, by providing financing at affordable cost. And in this regard, uh, back a few years ago, uh, the China Green Finance Committee, which I chair and City of London, we set up a uh, set of principles called Green Investment Principles for the Better Road. Uh, largely uh, to mobilize financing and help emerging markets um, to finance their uh, green infrastructure. And in fact, the DBS is one of the members or signatories of the uh, Green Investment Principle. So annually, uh, we are holding conference um, and also uh, asking the working group to develop ideas on how to you know, enhance transparency, measuring environmental impact, and also innovate on financial products. Um, to help with these emerging markets. Oh, very, very encouraging. Uh, Jun, I'd like to devote the last part of the podcast going back to China. Uh, last year on this podcast, we had uh, Paul Hebert, who heads financial stability at the European Central Bank. And he told me that most of his time is not spent on looking at you know, banks' value at risk from financial shock, but looking at their risk on their portfolio from climate shock. So give us a sense of the climate risk and financial risk intersection in the context of China. Indeed, uh, green and sustainable finance uh, has two uh, major aspects uh, which are well recognized. One is mobilization. Uh, we need to mobilize more funding uh, for green investments. And secondly, uh, it's about risk management, namely uh, managing risks arising from the uh, environmental and climate exposure uh, for financial institutions. Just to give you some ideas. Um, many banks uh, uh, in the world are telling us that, that they have 10 or 20% of the assets, uh, which are called uh, uh, high carbon assets or assets that's exposed to uh, climate risks. And uh, uh, in some regions, I think in the very um, sort of carbon intensive uh, uh, countries or regions, I think uh, their financial institutions may have high exposure to these uh, uh, high carbon assets. And these assets face a lot of risks. In China, we have done a study showing that uh, um, the potential default rate of thermal power companies can go up from the current 3% to 22% within 10 years uh, because of energy transition. Because energy transition means that the demand is gonna go down uh, for these companies and the cost will go up as they will have to pay high prices um, you know, to, uh, 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 to actually, uh, pay more to buy the carbon quota uh, if they want to continue uh, producing at the current scale uh, with carbon intensity. And uh, with the uh, worsening of the financial performance, the funding costs will also go up uh, because uh, the rating companies will actually downgrade them uh, and therefore are forcing them to uh, accept a high funding cost or even you know, out of the, uh, the financial market. So all these are problems uh, which are facing the uh, high carbon uh, companies, uh, which are the high carbon exposure for the banks and financial institutions. So uh, in China, we're now asking the financial institutions to begin to look into the measurement and reporting of uh, these risks. Uh, for example, some banks have began to uh, use a definition of brown uh, taxonomy and began to uh, measure you know, how much assets we have in this brown space. 
And uh, I think more than a dozen Chinese banks began to do environmental and climate risk analysis in the form of uh, stress testing. And, uh, and uh, they are now stress testing against different industries, such as coal-fired power generation, steel, cement. All these are now being you know, worked on. And uh, the central bank uh, just issued a guideline uh, last month to the Chinese banks that they will be required to report uh, on their climate and uh, environmental information on a mandatory basis going forward. So again, so staying with China, uh, beyond this one example that you gave about one bank, what's your sense of China's financial sector's preparedness with respect to climate change? Um, now, in terms of mobilization, I think uh, uh, the Chinese banks are doing quite well. Uh, we have now 13 trillion RMB uh, uh, worth of uh, green loans already, uh, which is the largest number in the world. Of course, uh, still growing very rapidly. Um, in the first half of this year, the green loans are growing at the pace of roughly 15% year on year, much faster than uh, the overall uh, loan growth. But in terms of uh, risk control, I think it's still in the very early stage. As I said, uh, um, about uh, you know a dozen banks began to conduct environmental climate risk analysis but we have 4,000 banks in China. And uh, uh, some banks are, are beginning to report the uh, climate information to the regulators. Uh, it's only on an experimental basis now, and it will take uh, some time, I think, to cover uh, the entire banking sector. Uh, asset managers, I think, uh, not yet uh, really uh, so engaged in uh, uh, climate risk measurement and management yet. So it will be um, you know, a long way to go uh, towards a sort of fuller framework for uh, climate risk management uh, within the Chinese uh, financial system. So lots on the agenda, lots of work to do, and clearly you're keeping very busy. I suppose my final question to you is that, you know, how hopeful are you? Because you see the global bureaucracy at work in various multilateral uh, discussions and deliberations that you sit in. And I'm sure you've had moments of frustration, like you were talking about having multiple layers of taxonomy that are often conflicting and confusing. So has, I mean, you've had a long career in private sector, now public sector, and now in the global multilateral uh, space. Uh, are you optimistic that uh, we'll make tangible progress? I would say I'm cautiously optimistic. Uh, um, as I said, a couple of things are, are promising. Uh, for example, a lot of large economies are committing to a carbon neutrality. And I'm sure many others will follow, partly because of peer pressure. And uh, I'm glad that the G20 reestablished the uh, System of Finance Working Group this year after a pause of two years, uh, which is a good sign, uh, partly because the US is coming back to Paris Agreement and US-China is now co-chairing uh, this uh, working group and making it more feasible to achieve a consensus uh, within the G20 space. Uh, but still, um, you know, different countries have very different uh, priorities um, and uh, sometimes, you know, on issues like uh, uh, whether we should be uh, uh, utilizing carbon taxation, uh, establishing, um, you know, carbon markets, removing fossil fuel subsidies, still lots of lots of debate uh, in the uh, international uh, community. It's not easy um, because uh, at uh, the G20 level and many other international forum, the consensus-based uh, uh, decision-making process needs to be followed. And as long as one major member uh, is objecting uh, to a potential consensus, it's very hard to move 
Uh, that's why we need to have a lot of skills uh, to sort of uh, facilitate the formation of consensus, sometimes by twisting the language uh, so that we can all uh, come to the same page. So, uh, you know, our action matters uh, in the sense that if we make more efforts, make smarter efforts, things can move faster. So from economic analysis to climate diplomacy, June, you've made quite the transition yourself. Thank you, Teimu, for the uh, invitation. It's great to have the conversation with you. No, Jun, thank you for your time. Uh, I mean, I cannot think of anything else more consequential than, than this issue. So again, we really, really appreciate your time and insight. I'd also like to thank our listeners uh, for being part of this conversation. Uh, Kobe Time was produced by Martin Taki. Uh, Daisy Sharma and Violet Lee provided additional assistance. It is for information only and does not represent any trade recommendations. All 61 episodes of Kobe Time are available on YouTube and all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, and Spotify. As far as our DBS research publications, webinars, and live streams are concerned, you can find them all by Googling DBS Research Library. Have a great day.